0: Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath in everything you do on that day, and don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestors. I, the Lord, have spoken. So good morning, Advent Hope. Greetings from a balmy 72 degree day on the coast of Maine. I wish I could waft some of that coastal air your way, Alex. Sorry for the the heat and humidity there in the city. So today we're going to be continuing our series exploring the Sabbath. And I'm gonna start by just being fairly transparent here. So when Todd approached me about speaking for this series, I had a lot of doubts about what I could share. So I spent the pandemic blessed with a full-time job and also homeschooling two school-age girls. And we made it through to the other side with our health and sanity intact, mostly. But coming out of this difficult season, what I feel most is depleted, empty, exhausted. And our topic today is the practice of sacred rest. It's ironic, right? But the more I thought about it, I thought that there might be other folks like me who need to rediscover the practice of sacred rest. So today I'm going to share the progression of how I have experienced the Sabbath in various seasons of my life. We'll take a little bit of time exploring the biblical context of the Sabbath. And then we'll talk about some practices that can help us cultivate sacred rest in our lives. So in my early years, I grew up in the Adventist faith tradition and at a larger, more corporate level, the emphasis was very much on keeping the right Sabbath, in other words, the right day, and also keeping Sabbath the right way. So there were all sorts of rules about what can I do or not do on the Sabbath. Within my family context, some of the strongest memories that I have from the Sabbath were being with friends at church, hiking around all the nature preserves in Rockford, Illinois, my hometown, and getting together with family friends to enjoy delicious Sabbath meals. Um, So kind of put a pin in those three things, we're going to get back to them. Then the next season of my life, my early adulthood, I was working for a large corporation and a demanding job and I was traveling all the time. I spent the other six days of the week working so hard that by the time Sabbath came, I collapsed with exhaustion and I actually spent most of the day unconscious. Uh, a lot of friends who were sort of in the same season, you know, we jokingly talked about Sabbath rest um, as in the Sabbath nap But I think somewhere deep in our minds we suspected that this was not what God had in mind for sacred rest. And then in the middle season of my life my husband John was a full-time pastor and it was another experience of Sabbath. Sabbath became the busiest day of our week. It became a day to be survived. I remember getting my daughters into their fancy Sabbath dresses. So infant and toddler, you know, putting diaper covers over their freshly changed diapers, packing the Sabbath bag. And by the way, those of you who are not parents, the Sabbath bag is the magic bag full of quiet activities to keep your child quiet and happy throughout a long church service. And I did all of this alone because John was already at church early and for the whole day. I remember a Sabbath morning in one of our churches in Illinois where I was playing the piano for the church service with two-year-old Kate on my lap while John led the song service and then preached the sermon. And you know, during the, those busy sort of burned out Sabbaths, John um, used to sing in a very ironic way that old song that many of us know perhaps from Cradle Roll. Sabbath is a happy day, happy day, happy day. And I would just scowl at him while I'm trying to get everybody ready and I'm multitasking and getting us all to church with our happy Sabbath smiles emblazoned across our collective faces. And in this season, we were surrounded by people on the Sabbath, but we felt all alone. And that's probably because of those happy Sabbath masks that we wore. There's not a lot of vulnerability, not a lot of authenticity. I am a few years out from that season now and I am revisiting the concept of Sabbath as this practice of sacred rest. So I'm looking at Sabbath with fresh eyes. And in doing that, I thought we could take a few minutes to explore the biblical context of the Sabbath. So we first see this concept of Sabbath in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation story, which Stephen talked about last week. Um, So this is Genesis 2, verse 1. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work and God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. So we hear the word rested twice in there. We hear it in verse two, he rested from all his work and in verse three. And that actually comes from a Hebrew word that can be translated into English as manuha, the manuha. So, Manuha is translated as a rest, or an ease, or a ceasing. So, think about those three words, rest, ease, ceasing. Already, I like this Manuha. In my mind's eye, I picture a hammock slung among a grove of trees or a canoe paddling in a still lake. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that the Sabbath is set in the context of creation. In fact, it is the pinnacle of creation. Um, Those of you who are musicians, it's sort of like a giant crescendo, right? And right over here at the end of the crescendo is the culmination of everything that came before. That's the Sabbath. With my project management brain, I would think, hey, this is where we have the big party to celebrate our successful go live. We bust out the cake and the party hats. The Sabbath, that manuha, the resting, the ceasing, is what marks the completion of the project. The project of creation is incomplete without the rest, without that easing, without the ceasing, without this celebration of what came before. We pause to acknowledge that all the work that was done was very good. Manuha also represents an important natural cycle that God hardwired into us as human beings. It's the doing, So six days of doing, 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 and then seventh day, not doing. Doing and not doing, a cycle of life. The next passage that we really see focused around the Sabbath and the one that probably many of you are familiar with comes from Exodus 20 and it's part of the commandments. So this is God reintroducing the Sabbath to a people who have been enslaved for hundreds of years. They literally worked seven days per week, no breaks, and their value as human beings was completely tied up in how much they produced. In this case, how many bricks did you create? So with that historical context in mind, it begins to make more sense that God was very prescriptive about how to practice the Sabbath. God's people were essentially learning this concept of sacred rest again, as if for the first time. So in Exodus 20, verse 8, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, manuha, dedicated to the Lord your God. Skipping down to verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested, he manuhad. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So this passage is God's reminder to his people that we are not human doings, but human beings. And it's reintroducing that natural cycle of the doing and the not doing. It also ties Sabbath back to his creation. And then the next Sabbath passage that I grew up hearing um, often comes from Isaiah 58. I usually heard the last two verses of this, but sort of completely divorced from the rest of its context. So Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day honor the sabbath in everything you do on that day and don't follow your own desires or talk idly then the lord will be your delight i will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance i promised to your ancestor i the lord have spoken so despite my early exposure to this passage as something that guides us On what to do or not do on the Sabbath, it's actually found in the context of a whole passage about true and false worship. So if you sort of flip back to the beginning of Isaiah 58, you'll see that the story being told here is God's people coming to the temple and they put on their piety, their pretend holiness, like a robe and they boast of their fasting and they boast of this supposed holiness. It's a lot like that happy Sabbath smile of pretending it's all good while ignoring all the dark and difficult things that we're glossing over the rest of the week. In Isaiah 58, God very quickly disabuses this notion of the Sabbath, this pretense of worship, saying, and this starts in verse 6, No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. And then if you continue to read the rest of the passage, which I'd encourage you to do even this afternoon, all of these amazing things happen in the rest of the chapter. Your salvation comes like the dawn, Um, Your light will shine out of the darkness. The Lord will continually guide you. And really, again, the pinnacle, the culmination of this chapter is the Sabbath is a delight. So it mirrors that same cycle that we see in the earlier passages like Genesis. So remember that cycle that God established in Genesis, the doing and the not doing. This passage in Isaiah 58 is a clue about how we should be spending our six days of doing doing good, seeking justice, sharing food, giving shelter. If we are doing God's work the other six days, then our day of not doing, our day of sacred rest, our day of Manuha will be a delight. He uses that word twice in the end of Isaiah 58. It's actually set up as a logical statement. It's an if-then statement. Conditional. If you do these things, then this is the result or the natural consequence. Reflecting on these passages, I concluded that the Sabbath, this Manuha we learned about, is not only about the single day of the Sabbath itself. It is a call to live every one of our seven days differently. It's in that Manuha, the pause, the ceasing, that we're allowed to fulfill our divine mission for the rest of the week. That Manuha allows us to reflect, to celebrate, to be inspired. So with that context in mind, I thought we could spend just a few minutes talking about some practices for those of us who might be struggling with cultivating sacred rest and really practicing that menuha. In both the Hebrew scriptures and the gospels, we see three practices that are closely tied with the celebration of the Sabbath. The first one is celebrating creation and cultivating awe. My high school English teacher long, long ago introduced me to Emily Dickinson. And one of the poems I still remember almost 25 years later is from Dickinson's Nature Poems and it's called A Service of Song. Dickinson says, some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home with a bobolink for a chorister and an orchard for a dome. In the passages we read earlier, God frequently links the Sabbath to his creation story. The Psalms are also full of songs praising God for the gift of his creation. The early worship leaders, so the Nicks of the church, spent much of collective worship cultivating awe by reflecting on God's creation. In Psalms eight, David writes, "'O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them, yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. In considering creation, it helps us to understand and, and be in awe of the magnitude of God. Psalm 19 is another well-known song celebrating God's glory and creation. David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. These Psalms are examples of songs that would have been sung in a collective worship setting, much like the church we're at today guiding the early believers into a sense of awe for God's greatness and reminding his people of the story of creation as they celebrated the Sabbath. So remember when I talked about my early childhood experiences of Sabbath? I mean, it felt like I spent almost every Sabbath afternoon in the woods, in nature, and even now, living here in Maine, I try to spend most afternoons either in the woods, um, at the ocean, somewhere, really trying to connect to God and creation. And I think that we humans are drawn toward nature, especially on the Sabbath, because Sabbath was the climax of creation. Sabbath and creation are inextricably linked. So by spending time on the Sabbath, delighting in nature, we are reminded that God is our creator and he continues to guide our paths. Cultivating awe in creation might look a little bit different for folks in New York City versus folks who are out in California, folks like me in Maine, but being intentional about getting into creation definitely can help us cultivate sacred rest. So, the second practice for cultivating sacred rest is a long standing tradition within our faith, um, but also in many other faiths and that is contemplation. Contemplation is the practice of cultivating quiet. Psalm 4610 is one of my favorite psalms, and it reads, be still and know that I am God. Some translations actually read cease striving. It's that same language we heard around that manuha it's in the quiet, it's in that stillness, that ceasing of noise and busyness, that we can hear God best. Jesus cultivated quiet and stillness in his life here on earth, that practice of contemplation and drawing apart to connect with God in a deep way. In Mark 1:35, we read that before daybreak, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. And this is just one of many passages where we see Jesus drawing apart to have this quiet contemplative time with God. As a musician, I think of this cultivation of quiet in terms of the notes and the rests. In fact, we also see this in a musical context within the scriptures with the term Selah. Selah is found 71 times in the Psalms. And we know the Psalms were mostly meant to be sung. In your Bible, you may also see it translated as interlude. Glennon Doyle writes about Selah. When Selah appears in the text, it is a direction to the reader to stop reading and be still for a moment because the previous idea is important enough to consider deeply. It is believed to be a signal to the music director to silence the choir for a long moment and hold space between the notes the silence, of course, is when the music sinks in. Interestingly, that phrase Selah is also found at the end of Psalm 46 that we just read, the Be Still and Know passage. That concept was so vitally important that the choir director was directed to hold silence for the early believers just to let that truth sink in. Brene Brown shares a story in her book, Braving the Wilderness, about this concept of cultivating quiet. She and another renowned teacher, Dr. Joan Halifax, had been invited to speak at a prestigious conference. So Brene and Dr. Halifax had spent the afternoon at a technical rehearsal for their evening talk, and by the end of that Brene was already feeling wiped out, but she was still planning on attending the meet and greet. Dr. Halifax said she'd be returning to her room to rest before the evening's presentation. And she gave Brene this counsel. Tonight, we will exhale and teach. Now it's time to inhale. There is the in-breath and there is the out-breath. And it's easy to believe we must exhale all the time without ever inhaling. But the inhale is absolutely essential if you want to continue to exhale. did you hear that? The inhale is absolutely essential if you want to continue to exhale. What happens if we just continuously exhale? If you do that in real life, you run out of air, you get lightheaded, you faint. This concept holds true, not just in our physiology, but also in our spiritual practices. At some point, if we want to continue to give, breathe, share, do, exhale, we must also pause, cease, not do, inhale. I love words, I geek out on words, and I think it's really interesting that the English words we use for breath, inspire, and spirit all come from the same Latin root word, inspirare. In its original context, inspirare, relates to infusing life by breathing, breath, inspire, spirit. So perhaps you like I have been feeling a little uninspired lately. Could it be that we have been simply exhaling continuously instead of taking that pause, cultivating quiet, inhaling deeply and sitting still in contemplation of God? Our third practice for cultivating sacred rest is one that we are practicing this morning, and that is community, cultivating connection. When I think back to the before times, some of the times that I felt an almost supernatural joy were when I was involved in either congregational or choral singing. It's something I've really missed during the pandemic. For me, there is something about that bringing together of many voices that somehow equals more than its individual parts. Um, In those settings, I get chills. I, a person who lives very solidly in my left brain, am often moved to tears. I had a taste of this at Christmas time when my family went carol singing in our little neighborhood here in Maine. As we knocked on doors and we sang to our neighbors on that chilly December evening, I saw my neighbors' faces and I felt so deeply our human connection in a way that went beyond words. That feeling that I experience in the lifting of voices is not unique to me, and it's actually a phenomenon that's been identified and named by science. Sociologist Emile Durkheim coined the term collective effervescence to describe the sense of energy and harmony that people feel when they come together as a group around a shared purpose. Collective effervescence, isn't that a great word? It's very bubbly. And that is one result of coming together in community on the Sabbath. It brings us this energy, a harmony, a sense of shared purpose. Part of Jesus's practice for the Sabbath while he was here on earth was seeking out human connection If you do a search for the term Sabbath in the New Testament, you'll get a pretty good overview of how Jesus spent his Sabbaths, usually together with his fellow humans cultivating connection, attending synagogue, healing humans, seeking justice, and teaching. We know from numerous passages like Mark 1 that Jesus typically went to the synagogue, and then he and his disciples went through the community sharing meals with and healing people. It's a sort of strange time to think about community now after more than a year of all sorts of COVID lockdowns when the physical spaces where we worship together were closed. But I think perhaps now more than ever, we're starting to recognize that cultivating connection and community is crucial for the celebration of Sabbath and our practice of sacred rest. So we've talked about three practices for cultivating sacred rest cultivating awe in creation, cultivating quiet in contemplation, and cultivating connection through community. But as we wrap up today, I want to focus on the most important piece of our Sabbath teaching. How do we prevent these good Sabbath practices from becoming just another set of rules to follow, from becoming codified like all of the other many rules? How can we avoid the rote Sabbath keeping of the Pharisees, the finger pointing, the resentful list of what I or my neighbor can do or not do? All of the practices and tips and tricks and lists in the world will not lead us to true transformation, nor will they lead us to true peace and rest. In and of themselves, they are dry bones. The cornerstone of the Sabbath or Manuha, is the beauty and power of the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. Jesus declared in Matthew 12 that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and our Lord of the Sabbath died and rested and rose again. Through his death and resurrection, he gave us the power to cultivate true sacred rest, a Sabbath peace that transcends mere rule following through the work of his spirit, breathing life into our Sabbath. It's that word again, right? Inspirare, breath, breathing, inspiration, the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus's transformational gift and his spirit that will keep our Sabbaths alive and well and fresh and true. Dry bones vivified, more than just a set of rules, more than just rote practices inviting the holy spirit into our sabbath breathes that fresh life into our sabbath every sabbath and this gift allows us to claim that promise of isaiah we can experience the sabbath as a joy as a delight as a celebration and as a weekly reminder that our god is both the god of creation and the god of redemption